are, you know, taking some of these culture, to like these culture totems that Russell talked about, and they're turning them into like, oh, these are upper middle class things. Like, no, 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 this is what professional class people do. Like, it's two different entities. You can cross over into both worlds, but I guarantee you that like, and I'm sure you know this, most upper middle class people don't pride themselves on reading the Atlantic. If you have the, like, yeah, I, I don't, I can't, I don't remember the last, like, even I think Fussell said this and it's true. It's like, you think about some of these guys, these like prominent titans of industry and when is the, what is the last book they read? It was some like random book on management or it was like a Tom Clancy novel sitting on the shelf right. of a beach house. It wasn't nobody. He, they're not like sitting there like reading all the latest books, trying to be a culture vulture because they are above that. Like they do not have the time for that. And that kind of I don't know. You could call it parochialism, and I do sometimes. Like that's kind of what you know the upper middle class I think is defined by more so than some of these like you know wacko right God like cultural items that people ascribe to it. And I grew up in um I grew up upper middle class in Baltimore, the suburbs of Baltimore, really, and. uh you know, I went to a private school there, and uh, 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 it was not the most like elite of elite private schools. It was a more affordable private school, so we did have a nice mix of people that went there. You know, it wasn't all super elitist kind of upper class people. There were schools when it's in the past, area like, that you were, usually get that. Yeah, yeah. like when it's, yeah, you you do. Yeah, and I remember I used to be embarrassed that like when, when I had friends come over to my house, they'd always be coming, like, Oh, your house is huge. But Oh, you, you know, like, Oh, uh, I had a friend that used to joke when he'd come over, he'd be like, Oh, what's it like being in the top 1%? And I used to be like, kind of like, <laughs> I used to be like, very like, Oh, I'm not like, oh, I'm not like, I'm, I mean, I'm not now like my own income is not, but like I was raised. No, in a, like, yeah. you're, you're, com you're coming at me. Like I can like see your like boxes back there. And, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're and, both like, yeah, no. <laughs> but I was Coming grew up basement. in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's my point. I think that like a lot of people, like we're starting to kind of, you know, reverse. Like I think American upward mobility is solid. And, you know, that's, we've always had a class system like Britain's, I think. Like my belief is that we always have in like certain ways is a little bit more, you know, scattered and like not one person can belong, like people belong to like two different classes at once. But I think, you know, you're going to start seeing that more. Like, it doesn't matter if someone is living in absolute filth. And this is what I think people are trying to get at with, like, generational wealth or, you know, accusing some of these sad journalists at, like, HuffPost or, um, like, Buzzy words, like, oh, my God, like, you know, like, you're you're a child of privilege. It's like, well, they, they're not living that life now, but right. maybe they were raised in a comfortable environment, not even, like, a super privileged one. But... I think that like people are trying to kind of make that connect where it's like, okay, like what, well, if they have all these connections or like they have all these advantages and like, why are they making shit salaries? Right. And like, they're about to be like, they're about to be let go next week. Like what's going on. People just don't really understand like how the industry works. And I think, you know, there are a lot of, it's harder now, harder and easier for people of different classes to come into media, to come into um, the literary world like it's easier in that there are more opportunities to get grants and scholarships. And right. I think lots of places want to hear more diverse voices. Like everyone's looking for that, but then it's also harder in that just a little, I, I think back and I was one of the only people I knew who had a paid internship at the time. Like when I got my first internship, the big five still weren't paying their people. Right. Like everyone I knew who was working or like interning for Harper Collins or Simon and Schuster, like they, they weren't being, they were being paid in college credit 
um, a lot of the people whose parents like couldn't afford to like put them up in New York or didn't have some sort of arrangement. Um, one of my friends went to her college's like financial aid office and they gave her a rent stipend. She was she managed to kind of like she, to you know find something that fit it. But I, I forgot what the number was. I was like, oh my god, what? How are you going to make that work? You know, right. like she had no choice but to make that work. But I was like, that's that's it for three months. Where like I don't even think you can find a solid like she did, and like it completely worked out. I think she might even like positioned to get more money. But you know, there's more and more opportunities and openings than ever. And like there's almost like a quasi affirmative action where you like leapfrog over everyone else. But then you have to actually do it. You actually have to like get to where you are. You have to like put out like walk the walk. You have to not have culture shock. There there are barriers. Like I don't disagree. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. And I grit, most people <clears throat> didn't have an opportunity to see this growing up. There's the conflation where they think <clears throat> that even people that are in the upper middle class are just like trust funds. Like they're conflating all the wealth that are like because they mingle with people that do have this kind of intergenerational wealth and stuff. Like they think that everybody there is just a trust fund. It's like, well, no, like this one journalist that works for, yeah, you know, Huffington Post or whatever. Yeah, they grew up great because their parents made, you know, six figures or whatever. But that doesn't mean they have a trust fund that they're living off of. They just had a great childhood and now they're making 35K a year. You know, it's not like they're getting money every month to live. It's like. Also, not to mention, like, sometimes I read or I see discourse and I'm like, I don't think you grew up in grinding poverty. Like they'll look at someone who had like a, like I, I you know, I. They'll look at someone who had like not even like what I like a like a, like a middle class upbringing, like two parents that were there, which is a great privilege, and like they went right. to great public schools, which I think is a great pr- privilege. And you know, these people are like, oh my god, like you're an elite. And it's like, no, this person's an aspirant elite. Maybe that's why right. you find them so annoying. But they they you know the system actually did work for them like they went to great public schools like they worked hard they got the career they wanted i think people forget like most people actually choose to be in this industry they didn't just like stumble into it like there's a lot of ways like it kind of self-selects that you have to be completely insane to want to stay in it after a while so in a way it's like yeah they chose this you know it wasn't like oh i I just got this job because i couldn't get anything else so i you you know (laughs) forgot where i was going with that that's your book sam that's your book right there it's not an original insight it's really not (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you are listening listeners to uh heavy board presents jerk shop we've been chatting already but i'm joined again by sam coming in here uh freelance editor extraordinaire and we're having a little bit different workshop talk this time. It's not going to be focused just on creative writing, although we will be touching on that, listeners. Sam has a much broader um, experience with this, too, as a professional editor, uh, interning at some of these publishing houses in college and grad school and all of that. So I, I'm actually really excited to get your, your your perspective on this, Sam. Thanks a lot for coming. No, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be back. Of course. Uh 
I always start this off. Just give me a little bit of your background with the writing industry, uh, publishing, editing, uh, and I know you even have MFA experience here. Just give us background for the listeners, you know, as detailed or as vague as you want. With Yeah, of course. So, I mean, there's really not much to tell, just that I studied um, both anthropology and literature, and I spent some time in writing workshops during undergrad. And then later I, um, you know, I had very little MFA experience, you know, left, pieced out and started editing. I um, started doing freelance work for breaking media. I bounced around, I took work at other places. Then I got a job doing editorial for a bigger magazine company, a legacy one. And now I mainly, I'm back to doing freelance. And I'm a lot of it, I think like a lot, there's a, a lot of my clients now, like kind of bought them, they became independent or they went independent after 2020, or they started kind of doing their, like their own businesses or their own management in 2021. So that's, I mean, basically the, I think my experiences are going to be a little bit different because I focus more on editing, which is a privilege. And, um, I think a lot about my own writing. Like, has it deteriorated since I don't have much time to work on it anymore? Like, since I've been putting out news items more than I've been putting out literary pieces. Yeah, and that's for the listeners too. Like, you are more of a nonfiction editor. You say is your expertise yes. in that realm. Yes. But do you do you, and you have some experience with editing fiction and, and working on some of those presses that you said you've interned in the past. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But now it's mainly political and cultural copy, and it's all nonfiction. How is how is the freelance market for yeah nonfiction editing going right now? I mean, we don't have to get no numbers or anything. Don't have to tell us anything, but just like how is that going? Is that is it rougher than it was? Is it better? <laughs> is it manageable? You know, I okay. This is what I'd say. I'd say that if you're open to reading different kinds of copy, if you're someone who can stomach kind of you know reading controversial subjects, then there's a wealth of opportunity for you there. Um, a lot of the, what I stumbled into or like was lucky to kind of start working on in 2021. Um, there's you know plenty of that now. I think in the past is a lot harder, but if you um, talk to certain people or if you are able, if you're like, if you, if you want to read about just any subject and that's political nonfiction or that's tech and culture, like there are plenty of opportunities for you there. Um, I'd say it's a lot harder to get started but like once you do they're just like you have the pick of the litter basically yeah i was curious because i was i've noticed through just searching the job boards and things uh you know there's more static content and there's more what they call static in marketing and stuff but like there's just more yeah. of it all over the web than ever and so like well they need editors for that you know like even if they're doing the chat gpt they still need freelance editors and the trend is they're not hiring full-time editors. They want to only right. freelance or contract you for six months or whatever it is. So I think, yeah, there is, if you want to go that route, listeners, there is a lot of opportunity there. But like Sam was saying, it's it's rough to get started. You know, you got to put that work it's... in to get started and then build the reputation and a client list and get recommendations. And a lot of it's word of mouth now too, you know, just... I was about to say, I think where I owe a lot of my success to word of mouth. It's so, it's so hard to advertise. And I think that I think I now, I mean, I'm lucky enough to have a sim. I wouldn't even say I have a reputation. I don't, I'm nobody, but I think people know that I, I appreciate free thought and that I will try to, you know, polish and burnish your copy without 
you know, toning it down. I will try and like keep the spice level intact. So <laughs> like, I think that that has helped me a little bit that I'm not going to shy away or like, you know, try to like report your copy to somebody or like get you blacklisted from any outlet. Like I'm, you know, I think I am on your side and on your team, but I also think what you were just saying about um, all those companies and like static content being produced by chat GPT, they're not hiring editors. They're just letting the, you know, AI spit out whatever copy and they're not editing it. Oh yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I would hope that they maybe like wake up and they're like, Oh gosh, we need somebody to apply their own special style or, you know, clean this up a bit. But at the moment, not really. And I think that's kind of what's going on in book publishing too. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, like people are saying that unless it's maybe like a certain kind of fiction genre, basically a lot of editors try to be hands off now. Like they don't even bite you on copy. They don't try to like, you know, curb your worst impulses. They just, you know, it's like, are you speak like, are you writing complete sentences? Yes. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> Yeah, that's that's and I I I I'm curious about this question only because it's like I've noticed this especially when I was working in marketing where I was, you know, most English degree holders have to do this post graduation and like you're yeah. writing the <laughs> bullshit you don't care about but like I with the internet with with editing on screens with the amount of content and the way that the kind of SEO forces people to have more and more content at all times to hit yeah. the search keywords and it's just there's less, there's more errors, there's more grammatical errors, there's more in, you know, yeah, um, fragments, there's more everything in there. And it isn't like a stylistic fragment either. It's like clearly an error, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, like, uh, it, it, I, I speculate that it's about everything's on screen. Cause like, even when I was working in marketing and stuff and they were doing the editing, it was all on screens. And when you're editing on yeah. a screen like you just easily go past the comma splices, you easily go past like all the kind of the stuff you only see if you're one of those people that know about it, you know, if you've been trained into like editing and writing and, and have to pay attention to all that. But yeah, you do. I, I think it's I also, also the software. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think it's also the software. Like I, I actually just encountered this today. I was editing a client copy and um, right before, you know, they sent like it, the copy was printed. Someone's like, Oh my gosh, like there are all these things that were not corrected. I was like, well, that like, wasn't on me. It turns out that a lot, sometimes in Google docs, like when you're going through and you're doing track changes or you're marking up, um, it's not easy to keep track of all those corrections. Like you'll accept all the edits and then go, like, I think a lot of authors do and then go back and like fix or take suggestions or like, okay, step that this, that's what happened, you know, today. Um, I added a comma and then it got deleted or like there is like one like entire paragraph I cut that somehow was added back in because of just, you know, Google Docs going through different groups of people where it's like I pass it on to one group and, or like one person and then they pass it on to another. And then by the time that it's printed, you know, it's like a game of telephone. Right. So it is kind of like the old fashioned manuscripts like you steal into an envelope and send out because, you know, everyone's harried, everyone's trying to get things done before deadline. This is something that a lot of people should have mastered, but it's different when a lot of people are remote or that, or when like there are different levels of experience, you're all coming together to do this. And yeah, it's kind of embarrassing sometimes, you know, 
you see this as like, what happened there? Like, what's going on? So I think when people are like, why doesn't this website have clean copy? Sometimes I think like, there's no excuse. But then I think about the chain that it goes through now, or, you know, the use of Google Docs, where there are like, you know, like five different people in the document with you. If you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board to get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast. Become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavy board. That's right. Heavy Board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored full-length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavy board. Yeah, and Google Docs doesn't track changes as well as some of the other <laughs> word processors. Yeah. And even Microsoft is kind of sucks at that. But it's, I've noticed that too when I've published, especially, you know, I'm not publishing in big publications. I'm publishing on friends' sub stacks. I'm publishing on few people that have asked me to write things for their sub stack, which I've been dragging my feet on, but I'll, I'll promise I'll get it to you. I'll do it. Yeah. Me, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, Things like that, and 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 then just local papers. I publish sometimes in a local paper here. It's internet, you know, online called the Nevada Independent, and uh, they, um, you know, it's all on Google Docs. Everything's on Google Docs, and you do. You have four or five people kind of going in, including me. You know, I have to approve the the edits and changes, and and they're usually always making you better. But it is confusing. And there's a lot of different emails going back and forth because everybody, it's cheaper to do it on Google Docs than to have a software. Yeah. Everybody has to have Microsoft subscriptions. Now you can't even just buy Microsoft Word. You have to subscribe to it monthly or exactly. yearly. Yep. And I, even when I'm, I'm working on a very longer, a longer novel right now and I'm almost, rewriting it, I've almost done it. And it's, I've noticed that the Microsoft Word keeps glitching, particularly when the document gets, you know, 300, 400, mm -hmm. 500 pages when you're doing this. And it's like, it starts to give me like error misspellings on like stupid words like the or of uh, that aren't misspelled. I can see it. And I'm just like, so the software is glitching. Like, isn't this supposed to be the best? Like, <laughs> like, you right. Know. No, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, the tech is letting us down. Like, sometimes certain magazines use ink copy, which I've liked, like I've had success with ink copy, but I think, you know, what we were just saying where like Google Docs is like a lot of these places, like that's all they could say. It's, you even see it in bigger corporations. Like everyone wants to use Google Docs now because like you said, it's not just that it's free, it's efficient. Like people can just like jump into the document, like there's no limit. Um, and you know, it's great in many ways, but then, you know, it's also what happens to stuff like today where, you know, you have all these people who are working very hard on some copy and then it just doesn't look like it in the end because things get lost. Right, yeah. And they, and they get miscommunicated too. And then, and then, and then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then a bit huge error after you spend all this time copy editing. Well, now a huge error gets through when you go to print or whatever, because of just right. somebody, yeah, it gets, got added back in, whatever it is. But yeah. And you have a, a, a unique MFA experience, I'll say here, but I think it's a very common one, Sam. Like, uh, do you tell listeners a little bit about your MFA experience? So I was just I wouldn't say it's super common, but I'll say that some of the, some of the people who came out of that or um, and they were already studying, they were already in writing programs in undergrad. 
they did kind of um, become stars of the new DIY scene. Like I'm seeing names that I remember. And you know, sometimes it's kind of nice to see them. Like I'm very happy to see them. But then also I think what was going on, like when I was doing it, I finished um, undergrad Lee, And I think while I was finishing undergrad also, like this is when I started, I had the chance to start taking some MFA courses. And I was able to kind of keep going from there which was a privilege. Like most people have to apply into the program and I was able to kind of skip all that right. because of the way our system worked. Yeah. And you were, and that was um, at the college you were already doing undergrad with? Yeah. Oh yeah. I was able to just kind of like jump to the grad program. So right. um, at that point, so it was very odd because you would expect more from some of these people. It was a pretty selective program that when you went around the room, you had like, again, like you had some undergrads in there who were taking grad courses. And then you also had like, you had people who were able to take like kids, like you, you usually don't see like adult learners or like adult community people in there, but sometimes they joined us. Um, and it made for a diverse and kind of fun workshop, but it also meant that workshop culture was different and that a lot of the rules of workshop were not followed. It also seemed that a lot, like a lot of people were not I was very surprised, I guess, by the way that people took criticism and then what they expected workshop to be. Um, I, it disappointed me in a lot of ways. I'm not sure if the way that it disappointed me was, the, you know, and other people had the same disappointments or the same expectations. Do you mean that they were just like not serious about it or they were like not taking the criticism? They were like getting defensive or they were. I think, out? okay, so I think that there was. I think a lot of like my instructors and a few of us, we really wanted to use the period to work. You know, like yeah. everyone wants honest feedback on their writing. That's just how it goes. But then there were a lot of people and who, yeah, it wasn't even just that they wouldn't take criticism. They were absolutely triggered by criticism. <laughs> and, you know, those like, I remember being pulled over, like me and a couple other people where it's like, you know, maybe don't be so harsh on so-and-so or like, you know, it, not even like giving so-and-so um, or giving so-and-so context, like, oh, maybe so-and-so is working full-time, doesn't have time to devote himself to writing, or maybe so-and-so is dealing with family stuff. It's just like, oh, like, you know, you're being a little too harsh. And it's like, well, what if it's true? And we weren't being rude either. It was always right. just critiques that you would expect if you were a writer. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think the other thing is I feel, or I always thought, you know, there is a culture around workshop, which is you don't talk about workshop outside of workshop. You know, like you, everything kind of just stays like it's the best thing that you can do, like to honor your commitment, which is why I'm trying to kind of like keep this very vague. And I'm like not saying much because I still believe in that. Like I, I do. Um, but I think a lot of people, you know, went a different route. They didn't know workshop etiquette. Um, except for maybe don't criticize this person because like God knows why, um, like, <laughs> um, like because they're a special identity maybe, or because like they have certain circumstances, but that was the only kind of bit of workshop etiquette that I really remember being followed. People would go and like, you know, talk shit about people in workshop afterwards. Nobody, you know, usually like, I think in like different MFA programs, these are the people that you see all the time. Like, you know, your cohort well, you see all the, this is a little different because like I said, I like, you had undergrads in there. You had some people who like just joined the community for certain, for certain seminars, not always. Right. Um, so, and then also, I mean, like a lot of people um, kind of, this wasn't a commuter school, but it was very close to New York. So a lot of people lived in the city and would just kind of like come on up. So it wasn't like, 
you know, maybe your program or one of these high res, like high res programs that are in more rural settings, um, a lot of people were spread out right. and people commuted. It wasn't like, say you're at Roanoke college and then everyone just like goes to like the one housing development where everybody lives and right. or you go to the bar and you see people there or you go to the coffee shop and people are working on their pieces and like workshopping each other outside of work. Like you, you just didn't see any of that. Yeah. And there is, I, we've talked about it a little bit on this. Uh, some other writers have brought it up and, and, and it's like that kind of, there, there is an etiquette like there is like a set of rules to how you would i think a lot of that is a good thing and uh, uh i do want to get your takes on the etiquette yeah with with just how you present the criticisms and the critiques i think that's very important how you present them so like if you have somebody who's being very rude about it or is just straight up oh it sucks it's boring you know like mm-hmm. you, those are just words that you want to stay away from when you're critiquing a piece and, and seriously doing it too like you're and I think how you frame it too, like, and then just the level of people's effort around the room there is always kind of frustrating when you're, 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 it's everybody's individual effort. So one person could be a great reader and always be giving you good feedback. And then somebody who's just not making an effort at all, you know, barely reading it before the workshop or whatever, you know, that just something you have to deal with. But, uh, I think the etiquette itself, like what, um, what do you mean by etiquette? Maybe let's say we're listeners out there, workshop etiquette or. So I'd say that the one rule that we followed that was workshop etiquette was to be very gentle with criticism, but not in the way that you were describing. Um, remember, this was about like 2016, 2017. So things were a little bit, you know, tensions were high. Politics was suddenly in the workshop. And I think you, yeah, you had to, you had to take that into account and it was something I wasn't used to, you know, someone would give a very thoughtful critique of someone else's work. And then another person who, and would just be like, I don't see enough people of color in this. And it's like, well, okay, this is a 19th century period piece. Like, I I don't know what you're expecting here. Or like, this is like, you know, they're doing, this is supposed to be a retrospective on something that happened in like 1851 i'm really not sure that you can like insert what you want in there like or provide the kind of perspective that you'd like you saw a lot of things like that i think a lot of people enjoyed critiquing sometimes more than they enjoyed writing which i understand it was actually fun it was like a fun rap session stuff like that but i also do think that not everyone i people either didn't give people equal criticism or they were afraid to critique other people's pieces right and i think that like outside of workshop um what we you know you couldn't write a piece like otessa like you couldn't do something that would have anything that might you know trigger someone's sensibilities because not because they would you know would wouldn't get past the instructor but you know, you never know who you set off in workshop and they'd right. say things about you outside of work. Yeah, it was just, I don't know. I think that there are lots, like, there are lots of good things that come from it. And I think everyone should, like, there, there are lots of, like, great benefits from workshopping. I think everyone who writes should have that benefit, but it's, or have that experience. But I just hope that culture has gotten better now. You know, this is, when you write, it's never, it shouldn't be about, you know, your preferences or your feelings. When you look at someone's writing and you don't like the subject, it doesn't matter. Look at their prose. Look at how they present it. It felt like a lot of people were forgetting that very crucial aspect that really serves you well in editing. 
Yeah, and I think one of the, another thing that happens with workshops in that regard is is <clears throat> even if, if there's somebody that nobody likes, if there's like they're just like the outcast of the cohort, mm-hmm. or whatever. I've seen like even instructors they'll just dig into this person a little bit because they're just like oh. you know what I mean. And I mean, that is part of it. Like there is like, you're, it's a vulnerability. You're opening yourself up to it. And I think a lot of places they try to put this kind of etiquette and well-meaning rules around how you interact when, when critiquing something. And I just mean it's standards expected. Like I, I had a really good instructor in grad school and she would always, when somebody was going off and they were saying some bullshit, like sh- she would just step in and be like, what would you suggest they do? what would you suggest they do to fix it? Like, you know, like, like you're not allowed to just go off, go, oh, it's terrible, blah, it's boring, you know. She'd be like, no, you need to give us constructive criticism. And then when the person didn't have anything to offer, she would just shut them down. But, All right, well, you're done talking. Next, you know, like. God, yeah. Yeah, and that's really, you need that when you have all these different people clashing in a room over things that they're probably pretty sensitive about, you know, like just hold everybody to a standard like that and it, it solves so many problems. But I know that it's it's weird, right? Like the kind of talking about it outside, right? The fight club rules don't ever talk about workshop. But when I was in my MFA, I mean, that's all we talked about. <laughs> that is all we talked about all the time. You also were in a more isolated, yeah. like, I mean, what else is was there to talk about? You know, I feel like <laughs> I had people, I had people just like, I remember talking to one person. And she was like, oh my God, I'm going to be so late. I'm going to miss my train. And I'm thinking, okay, like maybe she's going back into the city. Maybe she's going somewhere nearby. Oh no, it's like a two hour train ride, like upstate. And if she missed that train, she was screwed. She would have to take a hundred dollar Uber to like get to her car parked at the station. Right. So there were like, yeah, like there were, you know, for every person who is full residency or like in the area, you have people like that. And I feel like, you know, people tried to be very sensitive, not only to people like that, who, you know, may have not had all the time in the world to work on their pieces. But I think, you know, when you're, when you, when you sign up for this, you're, you know, like you're making a commitment, you know, like you're walking oh, yeah. into this, like, you know, what's expected of you. I don't think that you should, you know, like everyone, like things happen, like everyone has issues keeping up, but like, you shouldn't, you have to fully participate. You can't just like let certain circumstances keep you from that. If you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board. To get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast, become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavy board. That's right. Heavy Board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored full-length episodes jerk shop heavy bonus content subscribers only ama episodes bonus extended interviews and more come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavy board yeah and I always, I, 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 I always say, like, it's always, obviously, we're, we're here to, to, to have fun listeners and talk about workshops and experiences and, and other people's experience in them and all that and the writing world. But I also, I always try to keep it a little bit positive because it's too easy to just be negative about this stuff all the time. Oh, yeah. Where it's just, <laughs> then I, and I did get things out of it. I did get things out of being held to account in a workshop by my peers and an instructor and all that and being forced to experience that and you grow as a writer and a person and all that. So there's always those positives too. Yeah. And yeah, you never know who you're in the room with. Um, any, uh, any, uh, uh, stories from, uh, 
your workshop, either like uh, something that happened to you or a friend of yours or something you witnessed in the room that, uh, you know, a ridiculous blow up or something over uh, uh, an accusation or uh, the, like the whole workshop you know, gets derailed? The, that has happened a couple of times. And I, I'm just, ah, I can't do it. Like what happens in workshops, days in workshop, <laughs> even years later, I seriously feel that bad. I like... <laughs> I don't want to share like anything salacious or anything. Oh God, I'm gonna have to think like what I could maybe put out there that ugh, I would feel okay putting out there. Oh. And, but it's always it's interesting because it doesn't even matter, right? Because like, everybody that's no, sat in it a doesn't room matter at all. Knows no, like... <laughs> they know exactly what you're talking about. They know because I I was in my MFA around the same time, 2016, when I started. And uh, it was right before everything hit the fan with the 2016 election. And there was a huge shift. <clears throat> and, and everybody knows it. If you've sat in a workshop in like the last 10 years, there's been this kind of politics bleeding into the workshop. And then it, all of a sudden it became the whole, the only metric that mattered for a while. And hopefully it's going away oh, now. Yeah. I don't know. Although I've talked to some MFA grads as recently as like 2021-ish, they graduated and it's, hasn't changed pretty much from that since we were there you know doing our thing i will say this and i think i feel like i can like cloak it on enough obscurity where like nobody would <laughs> but i think so you know i where we were located we were kind of we were in the very in the middle of an area that like we were very close to a historically working class city um and a lot of the original population is still there um and you know we some of the undergrad faculty members started, um, you know, putting together classes for people in the writing department, the undergrad writing department to like go explore that city to kind of interact with people there. But um, on the grad level, someone was like, I really would like to, you know, do a series of interviews, and like maybe put together like a sheaf of them. And I want to talk to some of these le like longtime legacy residents about the changes in their hometown and you know, tie it into the election because that area went straight to Trump um, right. or like pretty close. Yeah. And so, but, you know, of course that got shut. Like I, I never knew what became of that idea because, you know, he brought it up the once he never brought any interviews or work related to that. I have to wonder if someone just told him not to do it. Right. <sighs> um, I've, I've had, you, you saw that a lot. Like anyone who kind of, any subject that was like maybe like oh you know like you kind of were discouraged you know from pursuing i've had several emails now from listeners that have mentioned something similar where uh they 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 reach out to me and, and tell me what they saw it's something like that and i had recently I, I did this on a bonus episode listeners you have to subscribe to listen so patreon.com slash heavy board but they uh where they wrote me in and they and they just said, yeah, they watched that happen where this, you know, a peer of theirs was writing a novel, had a good kind of a, an idea for a novel, but he was a straight white guy, you know, and he had an idea oh for gosh. a novel about a Negro League baseball team and like kind of very interesting idea the way she described it, like like write about this this great kind of historical fiction plan and. He was just discouraged from it, you know, because he just yeah, like well you're a straight white guy, you know, you're not going to be able to write about this and, you know is the world is it the end of the world no but it is also like you know the world probably would have been better off if this person wrote that book or or whatever you, right. know, like, you never know and 
Yeah, I mean, that's happening a lot, I think. I think it's the reason I started this segment, too, is because I was getting emails from people. When the people started reaching out to me with stories like this, I was like, okay, so I'm not crazy. You know, I'm not making it up. Oh, I'm no, you are not. So, yeah, like. I'm trying to, okay, so another thing that did happen is I had an amazing advisor, um, and he was Korean, uh, of Korean descent, even though he was a Canadian citizen, and he was um the very one this is one of like the very first um teaching jobs I think outside of Canada that he had. And he showed us like, you know, this video of um obviously like an American um journalist or an American nonfiction writer going over to Korea and, you know, taking one of their cultural customs and like do, doing some sort of like a creative spin on it. Right. Um and yet showing like and he showed like the, the video showed like the residents just appreciating the guy, like, hey, that's really cool. Um he turned it off and I forgot, I, like, it's all so blurry now. He, it was supposed to be a prompt for like some of our own work. And immediately it was just like, what is that white guy doing presenting another person's culture? Right. You know, how, why were they okay with that? Like, why was everyone just like so ecstatic to like see his spin on this certain custom? This doesn't seem okay. Like he's making money off of these people. I bet <laughs> they didn't get paid shit. Like it just like every, it just turned into that. And like, I don't know, after a while I started thinking that, it was like a, yeah, sorry. Thanks. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, you're good, you're good. Sorry. Delivery guy. <laughs> no, you're good, you're good. Yeah. Um, what was I saying before? Apologies. No, oh, yes. Uh... I was. I think a lot of what happened, so, you know, people talk a lot about imposter syndrome, not just in the, in the writing world, but just like in any industry, in any setting. I think a lot of the people who tried to derail workshop or, you know, gave these critiques that were completely off base, which they were kind of maybe trying to take the focus off of themselves right. or maybe even like their envy of like someone's really great piece, you know, like they couldn't bring themselves to say something good about a piece that whose subject matter they didn't like. So the only thing they could do, or maybe they were unprepared, like they're, you never right. know, but that was like a surefire way to kind of just get things off track. And you saw that happen a lot where, you know, this was the one reliable thing that you could say and like bullshit your way through while maybe like putting someone else down. So you could always give kind of like a, you know, narrow cultural critique of the work. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that is a underestimated reason as to why this got as kind of crazy as it did with, with it, politics infiltrating the MFA and the writing world and really everything now too. It's social media, but I think it also is because it's easier to make a cultural critique like from that angle than it is to critique something like like a structural writing craft angle. It's much easier to critique it yes. from this large cultural, oh, well, you know, this kind of vague reference to black people or Asian people or whatever it is, you know, like just kind of a vague reference to this monolithic group. And uh, <clears throat> then it's like, oh, well, you're saying something profound, but like you're not actually, you know, like you're not actually talking about the piece. You're talking about the larger cultural world right now. You know, like it's it distracts and people conflate the two. And I think that's a source of a huge, huge issue with that. Yeah. But that's what I mean. I, I, I'm getting more and more people. Maybe it's just I have more people listening, but they're reaching out with their stories. And I, I really appreciate that, listener. So, yeah, if you have something to share, send that in, heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. And I had a few questions about what you've seen as just like an editor. And, and as we said, listeners, Sam is like a kind of in the, in the not, I don't want to say news, but in like the nonfiction cultural commentary uh, editing world. Yeah. 
Uh, and what what have you noticed, say, over the, like the last five years in terms of like a change, a shift? And we talked a little bit about the technological shift, the economic shift, but like the business model shift. And I guess like the cultural shifts, you know, like what have you noticed or seen uh, just as, a, as an editor working and freelancing in that world? So one thing that I like just stuck in my mind, and I don't know why it did, because I'm sure this is a common occurrence. Um, I went on a job interview in late 20, no, yeah, no, early 2020, right before the pandemic. And it was for just news editing. I would just be reading and, um, news items that would go out in a briefing every day. Um, and it was right near, um, it was, it was a bipartisan company. Like basically they, at one point they provided services to the White House. It was just, you know, editing a news briefing that goes out to certain corporations or like certain branches of government every day. So I, the, what my um, interviewer was talking and he's like, you know, like, how do you feel about, he basically implied that I would have to edit copy I disagreed with. I was like, okay, this is odd. Like, it's not, it, it, why does this have to be brought up? And he's right. like, if you, if you believe strongly in the Democratic Party, for instance, then you might be reading some things that you might not find to be correct. But it was like, why, why are you giving me this, like, you know, this explainer about how, you know, editing news works? Of course, I'm not going to love everything I edit. That's not the point of this. But you start seeing that more and more and more. Like, I've experienced that more and more and more. Where it's, um, There is a Facebook group, and it's kind of notorious um, for female writers and editors. And at one point um, in 2020, this poor woman... Um, and she was a woman of color. This poor, poor woman. It was like, okay, guys, like you know, I actually do copy editing for Fox, and it, it pays really well. But I'm taking a new job, and like, you know, DM me if you want a reference. Here's the like, here's the page. Here's the like, you know, here's her compensation. And the group just exploded. Just, right. I, it, I, you know, the, it's its own like moderator. You know, that's how I got one of my first jobs. Its own moderator. Um, ended up like posting about the fallout on Twitter and it was just absolutely insane. Like I, 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 um, a lot of these, like this entire group that was supposed to just be like, you know, women helping each other. It was never supposed to be partisan went after this poor, poor woman, like calling her a white supremacist, <laughs> try, like the entire, like the entire group, like, you know, by the very end of it, like all the admins for the groups, like because they, like this group extended over time, like there, was, you know, there was a group for editors, there was a group for content writers, there was a group for literary fiction, there was a group for, um, for like just like for anything, like people who were on the business side of publishing more. Um, all the leadership in those groups had to be switched out. Um, the head administrator had was like, hey, listen, you know, like we, like we're if you're not posting about jobs and compensate like you know you need to get out like this isn't a place for your political rants and right. you know before i never really noticed because i just used it as a job board but yeah some of the like admins of these pages it was like posts on posts like about political events every day and like it was supposed to like some people maybe like vent about clients they had or like a day at work but you just you know you see i've been seeing that more and more and right. i i know that it happens in news organizations even if i'm not there you know people get feel like they they aren't seeing copy as just copy they're not really right. seeing their job as just a job they see themselves as cultural stewards and that's not good right and, I, and it leads to a lot of 
you know, one thing that people leave out of all these kind of blowups that have been happening over like the last five, eight years, it was like, is just how unprofessional it is. Like just how, how unprofessional that behavior is that if you're going off, you know, we all have bad days. Sure. But if you're like going off and going hard, trying to get people to lose jobs, calling these people white supremacists and names and things like that, horrible career ending names, like those types of labels can ruin your life, even if they're not true. They're just put on you. And like, it just, it's just how unprofessional it is. Like every, and like you said, it's because they're convinced that this is this kind of cultural steward or that their contribution is going to make a difference or something if they just, I don't know, like, uh, but it, it, we've, we live in that world now where, where you're having conversations. Well, everybody needs to know your political affiliations before the conversation, after the conversation, and you're judged according to those and not what was said in the conversation or the work you put out or anything like that. For sure. And what you're describing, and the reason I asked that question is because I know, like, this is happening in almost every field. I know I listened to um, <clears throat> Blocked and Reported, Jesse, Her- Jesse yes. Singer and Katie Herzog's <laughs> thing. I-, I love them. Shout out. And uh, they did a great thing on, I forget his name, but he was basically like a writer. Um, I forget his name. And it, he was uh, American, but he was, you know, Filipino descent or whatever. And, uh, he had a book published and Jesse did a great thing on it where did in-depth coverage. He wrote this book, but I guess the main characters were black and there is, he basically just describes what he was put through during the, like the publishing process. And they never ended up publishing the book with like a big five, but just what he was put through. Like he was basically subjected to all of these, uh, you know, do you really have authority to write this? And then he got defensive where he was like trying to explain why he has authority to write this. And then of course that looked bad. And then like, <clears throat> you know, and they ended up not even publishing the book. So here we have this, this minority technically writer writing a novel. We want more voices. We want more diverse, but now we can't publish it because of this other political thing. That's cause so we're like oh. hurting the cause that we were trying to help by doing all this. And it's, really ridiculous and absurd and everybody's looking around feeling it and that's why i'm glad you brought it up where like the politics but nobody is can the tension. say anything right it nobody is the source of tension yeah yeah Everywhere. it's not even just that it's like i think so many of these like older people they want to stay relevant or they're afraid you know you have senior editors who are afraid of their junior staff it's it's and i every single time i hear a story like that i'm like what are you so afraid of what's going right. to happen but then i think about the last couple of years and it's like oh yeah you can totally fabricate like a false allegation you can do something to punish somebody um so a lot, i think that you know what's is a lot of things change what's like good and bad like i think the unions at some of these places are stronger like harper collins is one of the only places in the big five that has a union now uh, or it's the only member of the big five sorry that has a union but and I think like um, insider unionized uh, businesses, insider unionized in 2018. So it's like, it's good that that's happening, but it's bad that it's not being used to negotiate worker conditions or anything like that, really. It's like, you know, they'll negotiate wages, but then they have to like put a splash of this in there. Like, right. oh yeah, also like, you can't make me edit this book that talks about gender. Like, yes, yes the fuck you can, that's your job. Right, like, there yeah. are millions of people who would take that job from you because there are so many aspirant writers, so many aspirant editors, and you're saying that you're unable to do the job that was laid out for you. That's a huge insult to, I, ugh, the profession. I'm not gonna go down yeah. that route. And, yeah, and it, to the profession, to the education you had, to like the ethos of the industry. It's just not great. 
and you're stuck. So now you're, now you're, you're, well, not only is it unprofessional, now you're, 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 you're using that to, to, I mean, it, it has long-term effects too, where, where the, now the publisher is going to have a hard time publishing this. Cause now if the, all their junior staffers are revolting against them in some way, well, like it's easier to just put that away than it is to fight right. a headache for a month because you have to have all these meetings and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, that's, I mean, and that's where I, I guess I'll move to this question. Like, oh, why do you think that this politics or how, you know, your theories on it, I'm not asking for a definitive answer, but how politics became this kind of focal point in the culture, particularly around these kind of fields like editing, writing, publishing, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think it's kind of controversial, like my theory about it, but, and you might, I think you might know this a little bit, like from when we've chatted in the past, but I think that there's a, there is a bit of, I mean, I think, you know, Turchin's elite overproduction theory is somewhat correct to a certain point. Um, I'd say that in the 2010s, like the early 2010s, like people were blogging in the 2000s. There was a lot of DIY stuff happening in the 2000s. But in the 2010s, or actually like, or like maybe right during Obama's first term, you had an explosion in bloggers. A lot of people who like discovered this new way to get their thoughts out there and kind of like circumvent or skirt like the mainstream way to getting exposure. But and but what's odd is like a lot of the successful people, like the people who really came out of there like smelling like roses, a lot of them were great photographers. They were wonderful at SEO, they were great marketers, but they weren't exactly great writers. But then they also have published books, like they had book deals and whatnot. And then, you know, on the other side, you have a lot of these people who always dreamed of being writers, but they never were really readers or they, a lot of what they read was fan fiction or it was something that was very elementary or black and white. Um, I know that in workshops, um, and mind you, like this is a creative nonfiction workshop. You had a lot of people in there who grew up on fantasy, were like weaned on fantasy. And I have nothing against fantasy as a genre, but I think that if you are someone who primarily reads fantasy, like grew up on DeviantArt, grew up reading fan fiction, then what you like, what you want out of a book is going to be completely different. And a lot of those people kind of like are looking for that like sort of fandom angle, like that black and white, like you know, one character is always a hero, one character is always a villain <sighs> um, angle. They're looking for that now in everything, not just books, not just fiction, but also political copy, also news copy. And people know that impulse and want to milk it. So I'd say that that's like a big part of it. Like it's mainly a lot of people who want to get into this. And, you know, a lot of us, who sh a lot of people who shouldn't be like I in a way, I don't even think I should be like sometimes I like wake <laughs> up some days and I'm just like, am I really like you have to really like, you know, I wouldn't say you have to have a sense of entitlement, but you have to really believe in your own abilities and you have to kind of like be able, you have to set the right conditions for you to work each day. Like freelance is not easy. And you also have to kind of like keep up hope. I think like there are a lot of people who are paid up who are like live in fear of being cut of like having to go through a job search again and like not finding anything. It's a small pool. Like not everyone makes it. So I think that's like all of this is, you know, adding like it's exacerbating things. I like uh, politics is kind of used as a weed out. It's used as a tool to kind of mask resentment where it's like, oh, I don't hate that guy because, you know, he has connections and he made it. I hate him because he has shitty politics, right. you know, stuff like that. And then there's also like on top of all of that, there's this group of people who 
they grew, maybe they were readers, but they were reading a different kind of book. They weren't reading the kind of copy that they now edit. They were never really into like they 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 kind of were like weaned on fan fiction, weaned on deviant art, weaned on romance novels, and they now want to you know even though they're editors, they want to they want to write the book. They right. want to look. They want to switch the copy over and like make it what they are used to. Right. And I think that's the motivation for some of the, um, <clears throat> I always bring it up, but like, you know, the kind of Roald Dahl rewriting, the Agatha Christie, yeah. Ian Fleming. I think that is where they're hiring these kind of 20 something editors, you know, for low five figures. I'm sure it's not more for than nothing. that. Yeah. yeah. To rewrite these masterpieces by some of the greatest writers that we've ever known. And it's motivated by that, where like they think that they're actually entitled to change it because the culture has changed or because the politics have changed or, you know, like it just it's it, it's a level of of. I don't want to say insecurity, but it is kind of a way to, like you said, get the lens off of you and put it on someone else. So now you're the you're the editor. Oh, yeah. So you have a certain job to do. And if you're not very good at that job or whatever, well, then you can you can mask the fact that you're not very good in it by focusing on these other things like politics or something that's easier and just presented to you on the timeline every day when you're scrolling and then you can just kind of form it around there. If you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board. To get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast, become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavyboard. That's right, Heavy Board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored, full-length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard. And then, of course, social media, I guess, has a big impact on this. Like you said, Rhea, around 2016 is when you were getting into the uh, professional side of it, right? Like the MFA and the workshops and the... Later, but yeah, that yeah. part, yes. Yeah, I was like, no, much later, but yes. Um, I I don't know. I also do think that, um, I think, so the author Wesley Yang had said this recently, and I think he's right. Oh, I love that Yang, yeah. I do too, um, yeah. that... Sometimes he'll be reading an article or he'll click on an article and just, you know, shut out of that screen after he comes over, like, across a bad sentence. And, you know, after, you know, after 2008, a lot of places downsize on their editing departments. And he's like, now we see what this is for. Like, even you even see it with a lot of independent writers. And I think that's why I've had some, like, success is that people are realizing, like, okay, I do need someone by my side to curb my impulses. You know, right. it's not easy to read and self-edit your own copy. It's, it's kind of it's hard right. so you know yang has said it. he's like a lot of these places you know that that you have people like entire departments dedicated to making this copy right and like ensuring that everyone had like that it was quality all of that is gone it's gutted because it's all about clicks now or it's all about a model that's about to go out of business and i think you know that's starting to kind of apply to book publishing too like there's a reason why people are downsizing their editing departments but right. then I have no, I, I wonder if it's just because, like, I really can't tell you much about the sensitivity readers. I wonder if it's because they feel bad leaving 
you know, aspirant 20 somethings out in the cold with no jobs. So they have to like make up. Like, I, I honestly have no idea what's going on there. But yeah, that actually leads me to a question with um, <clears throat> when you mentioned the business model and kind of this, the, is the publishing industry dying? And I, I mean that in the kind of broadest possible sense. I know that's like a meme and people talk about it all the time and they want, some people cheer for it to die, right? Some people are cheering for it, but. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not, not in book yeah. publishing, like, so I don't know if I can answer that right. But this is what I think. I don't think it's dying or I think that, I think that it can reverse itself. And, you know, we see it now with like my year of rest and relaxation. The more if they just start focusing on quality books, um, even that like lit it girl article, if they just start using different techniques and maybe reversing what they did over the past 10 years, I think it can save itself. Um, I, I think you know, the store McNally Jackson in New York, um, I, I've been going there for years and years and years. I remember when I opened in 2007 and, um, like it was close to my dad's house and I would walk. I think that, um, the reason for her success, Sarah McNally's, and she said it, is that she focuses on readers. It was never going to, like, of course, they're like, you know, trinkets and cool stationery and stuff. It was never going to be a bookstore that was not for readers. Right. She was all like, she, she always ordered from pub, like, you know, certain publishers, ones that had like the most, like, she always made sure to have a wide selection. She didn't always have bestsellers. She was always very, uh, she was always very choosy with what she chose to sell. So I think that's, you know, you have to apply that to the publishing houses. It has like, you know, I'm sorry, guys, you're going to have to start printing what people want to read, right. you know? And this is not just like your, you know, especially the small presses that are DIY. This isn't just like your vehicle for validation. You've got to like, you you know, we, we've already read this piece about white guys. Like I've been reading it like the same one over and over for about 10 years. Like right. we, we've got to get off of this now and publish something that I know you have in, in you, something innovative, something fresh, something fun that will get people excited about books again. I think I, it can be done. I, I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. And we, we've chatted about this. And I, one of my motivations for starting this podcast and why the regular episodes, you know, the, the, we do these jerk shots, but the regular ones, we do books and have like fun book chats about them. And, and, and because I'm, I, I think it can be done. It can be done if we have the, like, I've been, this is broader, not just books, but, you know, you and I chat cultural about cultural stuff all the time. And it's just like, this, this, it feels like there's a death attitude about almost everything right now. Like everybody's yeah. just like, oh, well, that's over. That's dying. It's done. And I'm just like, no, like, like, and I, I think of like, like things like, like the, the Barbie Oppenheimer, like these huge hit movies that made almost billions of dollars that we haven't had a hit movie in the summer where the whole culture was obsessed with it for like a couple months in a while, but it didn't go away. Like it's still there. You just have to put out something that people want to go see or want to pay money for and market it accordingly. And you see this stuff with the books, like yeah, book sales are down. And there was that huge shift to kind of the political nonfiction market. Cause that was the biggest market after the YA kind right. of collapsed and dried up. And I understand that, you know, you get, you, you're running an industry. You have to chase that. <clears throat> but then it's like, all right, now, now the culture is shifting again and people want something a little different. They want something like Otessa. They want something a little raunchier, a little raw, a little more honest about about all this stuff. And yeah, I think it can they be. They don't revived. want to be babied. I don't yeah, think yeah. you know. Yeah, I think after there's there's a certain subset. I think of millennials, like people our age, and you see it. Um, my friend's husband makes this remark all the time, and it never fails to crack me up. 
that all like every bookstore in my area where I live is it has this like very infantilized aesthetic like you walk in the first thing you see it's not books you see like plushies you know you see trinkets you see like like you know what he he's he's like you know they're rbg gift stores i'm like oh my god you're right he's like you know like that's how he refers to them and he's just like there's like another rbg gift store like down the block and that's true especially after she died you go and i'm like okay so uh, all right you know, I, I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but we got this pillow here. We got this plushie. I don't know. Like, I feel like that's kind of disrespectful to have. Um, where are the books? You know, like, can right. you get to the yeah. books, please? That, that's what a lot of the, and then like you get to the to the stock and like all these places, a lot of them have the same stock and it's either political nonfiction, like you said, or it's YA or it's, you know, like you don't see great literary fiction that much anymore. Um yeah. And the books that are promoted, I think Otessa is kind of, you know, an exception. I remember reading what was like, um, I think Samantha Irby is another exception. Like she's writing stuff that is raw and it's funny and it's, you know, like she doesn't try to fit herself into any box. But, you know, aside from like those two women or maybe maybe Sally Rooney, I remember going to the bookstore in 2020. I was so excited. Like it finally opened. I was in quarantine. Um, and the book that was being promoted at the time was Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. And it was like, she's going to be the new hope for literary fiction. I read this, it's like, what? No, what is this? <laughs> there were obvious reasons for you to promote this, and we know why. It was not out of excellence. I don't care if she went to Iowa. What is this? If you right. wanted to find diverse voices, and like, there's so many wonderful female black writers, and why? Why is it that this has to be like forced on everybody when right. there's so many wonderful like literary writers out there, like you know, of color, of different, like it's, right. it's crazy. Yeah. We live in the the best time in the world to be able to find diverse voices all over the country. You know, like like yes. There's a lot of people pretending that it's like 1968 or whatever, and we just finished like you know ending segregation or something. It's like no, like we've had decades of intermarrying, intermingling, migration, like immigration. And look at what we have, this great culture that we can, it's very rich. You have all these perspectives. It should be easy to find great writers from all over the place, you know, to, and I think you're right. I like that you're positive about it too, that it can be done. Like it can with a little bit of work, a little bit of motivation, a little bit of determination and taste, maybe a little bit of taste. taste. Yeah. We can. There are so many people with great, like, with discerning taste, and I think they're just waiting to come together and form. Like, yeah, you can see it. They're wonderful. Like, you know, like you can see it kind of starting to form and emerge. It can be done. Yeah. And I, I recently, I was listening to something, and they talked about this, where they just said, you know, it does feel like the last ten years, fifteen years, that we have just been unable to have honest conversations honest serious conversations about art books play you know whatever's coming out movies that we just there's this tension that political kind of usually yes woke kind of politics coming in and strangling everybody so that we can't even tap it's hard to even talk with your friends a lot of times about this stuff because there's this there's this tension that is like coming from outside the room that is like on existing on the timeline that everybody's scrolling constantly and then it just kind of everybody's feeling that. And I think we are reaching an apex where everyone's starting to get really sick of that 
where it's like, okay, like, especially those of us that know what it was like before this, where you can look back and say, you know what, this didn't used to be the way that I could sit down at a dinner with friends or whatever, get some coffees and we could chat for hours and it didn't matter. We would laugh. You you talk about any type of dynamic you want. And there wasn't this judgmental aspect to it. And I think we're starting to see that pushed back on to the point where, yeah, I think there's reason to be hopeful, even though we're negative on this podcast and we talk about the issues, blah, blah, blah. There's plenty of reason to be hopeful for what we can do here. And I think even some of the, you know, the presses are slow, especially the big five, right? That's a big ship to turn in the water when the tide's changing. You know, it takes a little while. I do to think shift. it's coming yeah. though. I think but it's yeah, like, exactly yeah. it is. Yeah, it's coming. Yeah. And if you look at like some of the imprints, like Broadside Books and HarperCollins, like the head of that, like, or like, I think one of the senior editors is a libertarian and a civil libertarian. Like he does not, you know, he doesn't, there was a recent call to pull a book from being published. He did not listen. It did not phase him. And I, I don't know. I think like I, when I saw that happening and like, also like when I read it, I was like, oh my God, he's holding firm. And he did that over and over again. It didn't right. like, it's true that he mainly will publish like conservative books, but he also publishes liberal political books. And, right. you know, every time like either side comes and is like, you need to pull this book, he doesn't move at all. Right. He's not afraid of anyone. And that's a huge improvement. To at least have like one person like that who stands up for free speech, stands up for the culture. And, and it goes away. It does work. Listen, like it does go like after, okay, you have 24 hour period where everybody's screaming at you. And then that moves on. Like the 24 hour cycles now are so quick. Like you just, you'll be forgotten I think about. People are just yeah. like, it's supposed, some, a lot of people say it's supposed to be a feedback loop. And I do kind of agree with that, especially in editing and publishing, because like I said, there are only so many roles or so many aspects. Right. There are lots of people who have different visions of like what the job should be. But I think everyone is getting worn out which is the best positive way we can go with it. Like you just wear itself out and then we have, yeah, the tastemakers. And I think there's even been, it's been so hostile to people that are confident in their taste and aesthetic too. Like it's even been hostile to you. If you have a confident taste, like even some, like most of the shit that I would get is because I'm very confident in my taste and aesthetic. And when you're confident and you argue for that, people just take that as like a, as an aggressive kind of movement like yes. position against them and they just don't like it. Whereas like, you know, there's just like that matters. And you, it, it is like, you need people at those levels of like a, yeah, a high ranking editorial level in a publishing house or a newsroom or something to put their foot down and just be, no, I have confidence in our taste and aesthetic here. We were doing, you know, a broad range of things and this fits well within it. And you see it. Well, those people are getting more clicks now. You know, Barry Weiss starting her free press. Like, well, that's growing rapid, rapidly because they're just that. Doing like that. that's yeah. She was one of the people. I think like when I said when I started doing a lot of Substack work, you know, a lot of people thought that Barry would flop. A lot right. of people, and like now she's outpacing the people who wanted her out at New York Times. She's right. not only is she outpacing them, like she's probably like she's you know she's bringing back the old model. I forgot. I saw her numbers recently. I was very impressed. I forgot what they were, but it's you're starting. You're seeing, you see that with Substack. Like you see people who are charging $8 a month to read like people's one-off political takes, but they're well-written takes and they're from someone who they've been reading for years. So they'll, they'll be like, yeah, I'll cough up $8 a month. And then they'll quickly, you know, get to a hundred thousand subscribers like Matt right. Iglesias. Right. Yeah. 
That's what I mean. Like, it's yep. same with the movies. That's why I brought up Barbie and stuff. Because like the old model is still there. Like it. it you it's... yeah. People will want to pay for yeah. quality. All these national outlets that are bought by Gana and like they're barely charging anything. I still don't want to pay. Like I I subscribe to the Tennessee for work for one of my clients. I still don't want to pay for it. Like it's. I would so pay. I would pay eight dollars a month. I pay twenty dollars a month for things that I know are going to be of quality, something I enjoy right. reading every day. And I think that's what people are starting to learn. You've got to serve readers. Right. Absolutely. I, yeah. Exactly. And, and there's. And I think that's what people maybe are confusing. And I'm going off here, but it's just like we keep saying that like the, the, the tech changed everything, like the tech ruined the business model and stuff. Like that. We just haven't adapted to it yet. Like we just haven't changed right. up. Because like, you saw all the streaming wars that we lived through with all these studios developing their streaming services that really ramped up during COVID. And now they're all retreating. They're all selling off like their IP because it's not a profitable business model to just stream hours and hours of content all the time. It's more profitable to do a serious marketing campaign on a good product that people like and make money off the box office. Like that's how it's always worked. Like on these movies and stuff and TV shows, commercials, ads, that's what makes the money. It isn't like, and they're like eliminated all that odd, they just eliminated all the, the revenue generating like apparatuses and then said, oh, it, it's dying, it changed. And it's like, well, no, we just literally eliminated the way you would make money with this <laughs> instead of how it always worked. And people aren't reading print newspapers or print magazines, I get that. But I think people also, no, you know, I think they are. Specialty and, and ones, yeah. yeah. They're comparing it to that time, like that kind of 80s and 90s, like they, like where they're comparing it to this kind of time where anybody could start a magazine and it could probably make money. You know, you could be the most niche thing in the world at that time, you know, whatever, ham radio magazine or something for people that do, you know, just a weird thing. And it could have enough subscribers to support it. And that time went away. So it's like, you know, now it just can't be just everything that goes. It has to be a serious product with an audience that you can find or build. And I always say that too, that people that think that nobody's going to listen to you or you're scared, well, don't be afraid. You have people like me out there, people like Sam, like there, there are people that understand what you're saying, what you're trying to do, that feel the same way. And like, no, you know, Absolutely. we can get out of it. Yeah, we can get out of it together in a way, yeah. I also, I mean, this kind of goes against what you were just saying, but I think gatekeeping is good. I'm the kind of person oh, yeah. that you should always, you should always try, like you should get out there and write, you should like do like do your best. But then also the thing about what happened with the blogging boom that what happened like maybe like for like 15 years is that the sad truth is not everybody can do it. You know, right. building an audience is a special skill, but that's not the same skill as editing. That's not the same skill as writing. You need a team. It's not like specialization is good. You know, you can't be everything at once. I think, like I said, that's what a lot of these independent journalists are trying to are starting to learn right now. Like, wait a minute, I did need somebody to hold me back. So I think that that's also a part of serving the reader. You know, we're now kind of transitioning out of scrolling um, through the news while you're like on the toilet at the airport. Like, I think people are trying uh -huh. to be more intentional about their habits. They're trying to be more intentional about what they read and they expect good copies. So I think for anyone who's going to try and become an editor, there are going to be opportunities available. But you have to you have to know your stuff and show your work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, Sam, this has been fucking fantastic it has been a great time uh <laughs> any final thoughts on editing mfas publishing no i think you, we covered it all we, we did we did it around. we fixed it yeah we solved it actually yeah all of we it. did it yeah <laughs> all right that's all i had yeah thanks again for doing this sam
Of course. Thanks for having me on. We're going to have to have you back soon. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. All right, listeners, this has been another episode of Heavy Board Presents Jerk Shop. Heavy. Board. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy board. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.